Good afternoon, this is Quintus Curtius, and this is the second lecture in a projected series of three on my new book, which is a, an annotated and illustrated translation of uh, Cicero's On Moral Ends, De Finibus. And in the first lecture from a little over last week, a little over a week ago, uh, we talked about books one and two of On Moral Ends. And in those two books, the discussion centered on Epicureanism, the strengths and weaknesses, the pros and cons of the Epicurean philosophy. And again, our task here is the source, the the um, is the search for the answers to the question: What is the ultimate good? What is the final, ultimate end to which man should direct his efforts in terms of how to live his life? And the first dialogue focused on uh, books one and two, again, as I said, which uh, talked about Epicureanism. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about the uh, the second dialogue, which theoretically took place in 52 BC. And we know this just from clues within the text, from little things that are said, you know, who was elected consul here and there, and who said this. And there are references in the text that enable us to date the um, the projected time frames of these dialogues. And the location is in the city of Tusculum, or the town of Tusculum in Italy, which is about, uh, you know, uh, well, today it's about uh, about a, you know, a two-hour drive outside of uh, Rome in the Alban Hills. And I'll talk a little bit about what that area is like when I visited it in May of, uh, of this year. A very, very nice place. So the speakers of this dialogue are Cicero himself and Cato, Marcus Cato, the famous Roman Stoic. And, um, you know, I probably should have said this at the outset of the uh, the podcast here, but the, I'll put a link to the book on my site on this, uh, the announcement for this podcast. It can be found on Amazon. It's currently available in both uh, Kindle and paperback. Currently, I'm working on a audiobook version of it. And uh, other things may follow down the line as well, which I'll announce as they become available. So some of the reference to the things that I'll talk about in this podcast will refer to the book. So if you do have it, it's maybe a good time to get that out and, and refer to it as you wish. Maybe, maybe not. Do what you want. It's a free country. So... You know, let, before we really get into the dialogue here about Stoicism, I, I want to say just sort of uh, some important things that, that I think should be seen as takeaways uh, from this, um, from the treatment of Stoicism in, in On Moral Ends. You know, everybody talks about Stoicism now. It seems to be a very, especially with young guys, it's a very popular philosophy, it, and, and it has a great deal to commend itself for. Its its merits will become apparent, uh, you know. And I've I've uh, I've written about it often. I, I've translated Cicero's uh, Stoic paradoxes. I've written on uh, many things, uh, Stoic themes. Uh, but I sometimes wonder if people have gotten a little bit too carried away with their enthusiasm for Stoicism, because like any philosophical system, it had merits and it also had demerits. It had strengths and weaknesses. 
And that's fine. Not every philosophical system is going to be perfect. You can't get everything right. Actually, who even knows what's right when it comes to uh, philosophical systems? That's a, that's a whole separate debate unto itself. But Stoicism has a great deal to commend itself for, and I'm 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 very very much in favor of of many of its teachings. But on the other hand, we also have to be mindful of its shortcomings, and everyone forgets this. Nobody really wants to talk about it. And I suspect that it really comes down to the, the reality that most people really have a very superficial knowledge of Stoicism. When you really come right down to it, they really haven't done the heavy lifting. They haven't read the, uh, they haven't really studied, say, uh, Epictetus, uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Cicero, uh, the writings of Seneca. Or if they have, what they've really done is throw around a few platitudes, a few aphorisms, and they think that that makes them an expert on Stoicism. It ain't so. It ain't so. There are a lot of things here that present problems and that should be reflected on in an intelligent way. Now, I don't want anyone to interpret this as a a muted attack on Stoicism, but I think it's very good that Cicero, in his book, is not afraid to bring out the big guns and to really attack the Stoics on many different levels. And some of his criticisms have real traction. Some of them really, really carry uh, a lot of weight. And I think this is one of the things that we have to be mindful of as we go through on moral ends. Because nobody should really uh, slavishly adhere any system of thought without retaining some sort of faculty for critical examination of its doctrines. We can't just surrender ourselves to worship. We have to retain our intellectual independence as we uh, seek out these ideas and as we discuss them. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, book three. This is where Cicero, actually where Cato, gives his disquisition on on uh, on Stoicism, on the main tenets. And you know, we, we talked earlier about how this this dialogue uh, took place in in um, in Tusculum. And you know, when I went there in May. It was such a, a beautiful trip. I really enjoyed it. I really, I can't, you know, I, it's, I don't know, maybe it's just me. It's probably just me because I'm just so enthusiastic about this subject matter, about these subjects, that I, it was, it was one of those moments where I just couldn't believe that I was actually there. I was staying in Rome. So what I did was I got on the train, and there's a very, very good train system in Italy. And uh, I took the train to the town of uh, Frascati which is in the Alban Hills outside of Rome. And then from there I walked. I walked through the hills to get to this ruin, uh, the, to the ruins of this town. And it's not uh, a habit, uh, hab, an inhabited town right now. It's basically just uh, scattered ruins. But there was hardly anyone there. I was the only one there. There was an archaeological dig going on. As I walked around, you know, the grass was, was wet uh, everywhere, the, the, there was this very nice dew sort of just dripping off the trees. It had rained or there had been heavy fog the night before. And it was that 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 wonderful moment where the sun is just... Because I got an early start in the morning. The sun is just starting to burn off the night's dampness. 
And, you know, as I looked around, I, I wondered to myself, man, you know, it, it probably is true that this area has not really changed very much in, say, 2200 years. You know, it was just beautiful and very evocative. And I can imagine that's anyone who had a villa because Cicero had villas at these places. He had like residences. We don't really know exactly what they looked like, but I assume that they were probably nice places and uh, he would invite friends over they would talk about probably current events political events of the day uh, philosophical subjects any just same things that that men today talk about when they're uh, in groups so uh, it the, you know and I, I that's really why i think that including photographs and I, and I keep going back to this but including photographs of these places in the book uh, on moral ends is such a welcome addition to do things in doing things because it it transports you right to that place and that's what i wanted to do i wanted you to be transported right to where i was and i think when that happens you can gain something out of this text that you would not be able to gain anywhere else anywhere else now don't just take my word for it compare my book with others and you'll see what i mean and it was just an incredible uh fortuitous circumstance that as I was in Tusculum I happened to see a skull being excavated there right in front of me I just I could not believe it I just could not believe it but I'm told that these types of things are not maybe not regular occurrences in Italy but they happen frequently because the whole country is just one large open-air museum the whole country has things in it every you turn over a rock anywhere and you'll find uh, some footprint of some individual who was there from historical times. So anyway, enough of that. Let's uh, let's move on here. So basically, in book three, Cato starts out, and he gets right down into the subject matter here. He he describes. He candidly acknowledges the difference. The the uh, the fact that the Stoics were very very hung up on terminology, and this is true. This is something Cicero comments on. The Stoics were real sticklers for painstaking, uh, hair-splitting, terminological hair-splitting and terminological creation, okay? And, um, you know, he starts out really by making a point about where the Stoics depart from the Epicureans. Cato says that uh, organisms do not really hunger for pleasure the way the Epicureans think, but what they really seek is self-preservation you know the, the epicureans think that one of the the, the fundamental motives and driving um, driving impulses of, of living things is their desire for for pleasure well cato says no nonsense he says that it's 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 self-preservation which is really what they are after and this is in um, book three sections 20 to 21 you know um, our lives are just not performances to be lived out in, in any way we please Okay, just as an actor or dancer has a special role to perform on stage, so must our lives, Cato says, be conducted in a certain way. Okay, and if we look at things in this way, it is clear that moral goodness is the only true good. All right, and he says this very specifically in in uh, in uh, book three, section thirty-one. He says, therefore, we must conclude that the supreme good is to live by applying our knowledge of nature's causative forces selecting the things that are that are in accordance with nature and rejecting the things that are not 
In other words, the supreme good is to live in conformity and alignment with nature. That's uh, one way to encapsulate the Stoic definition of the the supreme good. All right. Now, this brings us to you know a real problem that Cicero talks about later when he attacks Stoicism. How do we really know, or what does it really mean to live in conformity with nature? You know, what what does that mean? You know, isn't it true that the seeds of of that uh, just as often as we can find the seeds of of good in nature, we can find evil there as well. So this abstract idealization of nature is a real mistake, is a real shortcoming in many ways that the Stoics uh, indulge in, because it it sets up this ideal idealized view of nature that in, in that biologists or people that actually do field work in the natural world will tell you is not really true. I mean, nature is just as dog-eat-dog. Nature is just as brutally competitive as anything that we find amongst uh, humans. So to say to live in accordance with nature in some ways sets us up for disappointment. You know, because Now, I suppose there are those who can argue, they can say, well, that's not really true. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we should structure our lives so that we are going with the flow that nature provides and not against it. And that's also a valid point. So we need to probe deeper. The Stoics are indifferent to those things that are neither virtue nor vice. And, you know, Cato then spends a lot of time talking about... um, you know, various classifications, various categories. Uh, some of the best sections of uh, Book 3 are found in uh, uh, Book 3, sections uh, 62 to 66. And they show a very finely tuned awareness of uh, what I think is Stoicism's strong point, which, it, which is its sensitivity to social responsibility. When you live in a society, you have obligations. You have to do certain things in order for society to function correctly you know and this is this is really something that uh, that matters a lot you know friendship is part of this social equation and should be seen as something desirable for its own sake and cato concludes his discourses here with uh, praise for the, the the greatness of the wise man in in section 75 and the wise man will always be happy he says because he's possessed of moral goodness, and he really doesn't need anything else. He really doesn't need anything else. Now, I'm all I'm really doing is cherry-picking some of the, the highlights of Book 3. There's a lot here, and, and you have to read it really for yourself. And I can't, in these podcasts, spend two hours here on the mic going through all this because I have to keep these podcasts to a manageable size or length. But some of the things that... Uh, we can see from Cato's disquisition on Stoicism it, it is that the, the first thing that it is it seems very tightly constructed. It's much more logical, much much more rigorous, much more dogmatic in many ways than the Epicurean explanation was by Torquatus in the first and second books. So we have to give Stoicism some respect for that. This is a very, very finely honed architecture of thought. It's a very, very finely honed system of thought. And Cicero does give 
uh, credit for that, uh, even when he criticizes it. But there are immediately some things that jump out at us which are causes for concern. And this is something that jumped out at me as I was translating the book, and I hope it will jump out at, at you as well, um, which I think is the, I think really is the biggest, you know, the, the, uh, the biggest shortcoming, I think, of Stoicism is its rigidity. It, you know, it, it's a harsh rule. It is a harsh rule in many ways. And I say in the introduction that, look, this is maybe a good thing because it's probably better to err on the side of harshness than on the side of softness because people's impulses and personalities being what they are, they will take advantage of any perceived weakness and run with it. So we certainly have to set a goal or a standard that may be unrealistically high. And that's one way to look at it. One way to look at it. But one of the things that jumped out at me is the the stoic idea that there are no degrees there are no gradients or or um um you know uh there are no degrees of of uh, of wisdom or of moral goodness a person is either wise or he is not so in other words and one of the analogies that that uh, is used is that well a man could drown just as easily in six inches of water as he could drown if he was placed at the bottom of a lake. And that was in response, that analogy is used when people criticize the Stoic idea that, you know, no matter how much, uh, you know, a person could be working on trying to become wise, but if, if as long as he has not attained that state of wisdom, he's just as miserable as when he started off. In other words, there's no you don't gradually progress to wisdom. You apparently, according to the Stoics anyway, you study it for a long time and all of a sudden you magically sort of don this mantle of the wise man. In other words, there's no there's no uh, degrees of uh, of wisdom. Now, in fairness, it, it has to be said that this this doctrine was was uh, was softened over time. This may have been uh, Zeno's original position, but in practice, this probably did not present a, pro- a problem for Stoic uh, students. And these schools, these these philosophical schools, were just that they were schools. In many ways, they were al- they were almost like maybe not religions, but they they were they were um, they they certainly were. Um, something that looked a little bit a lot like religions in some ways they were sects s s e c t s sects so even though on paper the stoics may have had a very rigid doctrine about wisdom about the attainment of wisdom and the lack of uh, of degrees of of uh, you know moral development in practice we can probably expect that this would not have presented much of a problem because I think I think that the Stoic teachers did sort of soften this view as time went on, and as a matter, I think as a matter of uh, practical necessity, you have to make allowances for people's progress. People don't just wake up one morning and suddenly become uh, become something. It, you have to gradually progress along that path. All right, so now we can move on to Book Four and to Cicero's attack on Stoicism in Book Four. And I really think this this book shows Cicero at his best. It, it showed that he retained his powers of critical 
thinking. He never really slavishly threw in his lot with one school or another. He always retained his independence. He always retained his intellectual independence. He had strong Stoic leanings, but he is properly characterized, I think, as a, sort of a eclectic um, skeptic in many ways. He was a member of the, the New Academy. We'll talk a little bit about, about this uh, in the next podcast, but he was, uh, on paper at least, he was uh, uh, an academic or a member of the New Academy, uh, an adherent of the Platonic school. But he drew freely from all of the philosophical schools, whether it was uh, Stoicism, um, Aristotelianism, or the Peripatetics, and maybe even a little bit from the Epicureans themselves, even though he despised them. But in any case, he always retained his critical faculties, and that should be a lesson to us as we go through this, this material. All right, now he starts out his, his criticisms of Stoicism by basically pointing out that Zeno really didn't, Zeno the, Zeno the Stoic was the founder of, of the Stoic school. And I talk a little bit about him in the introduction. You can go and read that there. But uh, how much did Zeno really innovate? You know, according to Cicero, the Stoics really didn't do much except give new words to pre-existing doctrines. He just gave new words to pre-existing doctrines. You know, so the alleged derivative quality of Stoic doctrine is something that Cicero harps on again and again in Book 4. You know, now we could probably respond to this by saying, well, so what? So what if he put his own words on things? Isn't that what... Uh, teachers or philosophers are supposed to do? I mean, look, there's very little that's original out there, okay? The originality can be seen as arranging things, giving them different names, presenting them in different ways. So Cicero's criticism may may or may not be valid. I'll let you decide what you think of that. Um... Cicero then goes on to attack Cato for the alleged Stoic neglect of bodily goods and external goods, which are certainly worth something. You know, Cicero says, hey, wait a minute, you know, you can't just say moral goodness is the end-all, be-all of everything. You know, bodily goods, health, things like that, health, happiness, bodily pleasures, uh, external pleasures, I mean, these things might not be, you know, the, 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 the end of goods, but they count for something. They're worth something, and let's not pretend that they don't, because it's not realistic to do so. Okay, the um, the Stoic really forgets that the importance of, for, the Stoic forgets the importance of nature's fundamental instincts. Okay, um, and according to Cicero, Stoic logic is flawed because it represents deductions from inadequate premises, and that uh, he goes into detail about that in uh, Book 4, Section 54. And even worse, he says that the invented terminology the Stoics use uh, is little more than a smokescreen to conceal the fact that they were not really developing any new ideas. Okay, And then Cicero goes on to mock the analogies that Cato uses to justify the severe Stoic view that there are no degrees of wisdom. Uh, you know, one again, we talked about the drowning man analogy, but there's also another analogy that Cato uses, which is the the blind puppy. It's basically um, a, a newborn puppy is just as blind as one that is 
young that's been around for uh, a couple days. Okay, so just from a practical common sense perspective, it's ridiculous to say that there are no degrees of vice or virtue. You know, nothing could be clearer, Cicero says, than the fact that some things really are more evil than others. And to try to say otherwise is just uh, disingenuous. And the Stoics are guilty of vanity and arrogance in elevating moral goodness as the supreme good. Because, you know, taking this position will cause us to neglect our health, our careers, our personal affairs. And he talks about this in, in section 68. And Wisdom must be based on something more than just moral rectitude. And this is a very, very important point. The Stoics, uh, you know, had a lot to commend themselves for, but they might have been a little bit too narrow, a little bit too one-dimensional. Now, again, I'm just, you know, paraphrasing and abbreviating a lot of the arguments uh, in books three and four just to kind of uh, give you, the listener, an idea of what's in of what's in my book, because I think uh, th- this work is really not very well known to most people, and it helps to have someone just give an overview about it. So that's what I'm doing here. I'm going to have to leave it up to you to really dive in and and uh, examine these things for yourself, and ask yourself as you read through: Are are the criticisms fair? What do I think of the criticisms? Do they hold water for me? Am I sold? Am I convinced that what the speaker is saying is correct? You know, these are the questions that you really need to uh, to ask yourself. Because, you know, nobody really has all the answers. Nobody really has the final definitive answer, especially when it comes to questions so fundamental. But, you know, what really makes this book, I think, so courageous, really, really courageous, is it dares it dares to ask the big questions. And not only does it dare to ask them, it dares to answer them. It dares to propose answers to them. I mean, how many writers today would do this? What what philosophers, quote-unquote, today would really dare to approach these subjects in a systematic way? You know, these, these, these so-called professional, quote-unquote, philosophers. There aren't many out there. And they shy away from these subjects because we live in a world where everyone is afraid to pass judgment on almost anything. So keep those things in mind. Really try to keep those things in mind. And uh, I'm going to post uh, a link to the book uh, in, in, the, um, in the article that announces this podcast. And uh, again, it's available both in Kindle and also in, in paperback. And uh, I, like I said in the first uh, the first dialogue, the first lecture. If you buy the book in in paperback, the Kindle edition is available at a deeply discounted price of of two ninety nine. So that is something to to be you know, to think about. Uh, you can get uh, the book in in uh, in both forms. I mean, again, we can go back and forth about which format is the best or which format people like the best. Each one, I think, has something to commend itself for. But uh, I'll let you be the the judge of that. All right, so that was uh, our overview of books uh, three and four of On Moral Ends. And the last, I'll do one more of these uh, in a few days, and that will talk about the conclusion and um, the roaring finale to uh, On Moral Ends, which is book five. 
which took place at the grounds of the Platonic Academy in Athens. So until that time, I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.